Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Dan Shapir. Hi, from sunny and hot Tel Aviv. AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live from Waffletopia. <laughs> we also have Steve Edwards. Howdy from a sunny and then rainy and then sunny and then rainy Portland. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And this week we have a few guests. We have Annie Sullivan back. Annie, do you want to say hi? Hi from Michigan. We also have Joe Weiss. Hi from Southern France. We also have Michael Mockney. Good to meet you, folks. It's a foggy one up in the North Bruce Peninsula. So, yeah. So you all, do you all work for Google? Yeah, Let's we're just all start engineers there. on a Chrome web platform. Okay, good deal. And this is kind of a follow-on to the episode we had you on before, Annie. Do you want to kind of, I'm not sure exactly where we left off or where we want to start here. So I'll kind of let you take the reins and lead us out, and then we'll see where we end up. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. Yes, so last time we talked a lot about Core Web Vitals and the goals behind mm -hmm. them and where they came from. And I also thought it would be really fun to talk about where they're going. So I invited Yoav, who's leading our efforts to integrate uh, single-page applications into Core Web Vitals, and Michael, who's working on uh, our new responsiveness metric, Interaction the Next Paint, to come on and talk about those things. Very cool. I feel technically inadequate with you guys on here. I agree. This is one where I'm going to just be sitting back and listening the whole yeah, time. Yeah, but this is totally my right. jam. This is like... So, this is what so I yeah, so for. I guess... We talked a little bit about Core Web Vitals and where things came from and where they're at now. One thing I'm curious about is as you start looking at, okay, well, where are we going to take this? Like, how do you make that decision, right? Because it seems like there are a million metrics you could use, right? There are a million ways you could make that decision. And so how do you, how do you make that decision? Yeah, there's a, a couple of things that went into it. I'll talk about responsiveness first. So when we look at the original Core Web Vitals, they were really intended to be, there's three metrics and it's supposed to be like a three-legged stool. We have this page load metric, largest contentful paint. And people were concerned, like, what if they try to cheat by like throwing up pieces of content really fast and cumulative layout shifts, which, stop, you know, it, like measures content shifting around, can really backstop that. So mm -hmm. you can't just throw some stuff on the page willy-nilly and have a kind of like shift all around because you have cumulative layout shift. Similarly, there's a big concern. What if you, you throw the content up really quick, but then you have a ton of JavaScript and it just freezes the page? 
And first input delay is meant to address that. But the, the consistent feedback that we're getting from web performance experts and also concerns from people who work on the web platform is the first input delay is not a strong enough backstop, that there's just tons of JavaScript, it's slowing down the user experience, and we need to, to do something more about it to to really be measuring the user experience. And so Michael's been working on this new metric, interaction to next paint. That has kind of two differences between first input delay, which is our old metric. The first one is that it measures the whole time until the next paint from the user input until the paint. First input delay just measures the time it takes the the browser to process the event. So that's just the kind of main thread busyness. Second, it measures all of the interactions on the page. So that that we think is really capturing. And when we look at the numbers, we compared, uh, for example, first input delay versus interaction to next paint. We looked at the HTTP archive and we took 3 million sites that had these metrics and that they also had lab data from Lighthouse. And we found that interaction to next paint correlates a lot better with things like total blocking time that show that, that there's a lot of JavaScript running and blocking interactions. So we think the interaction to next paint is a much better uh, leg for that three-legged stool that measures the slowdowns that people get from JavaScript. So could you rephrase that, the, the meaning of that one more time for me? Because I, I think I understand it, but the words don't, on their own, quite don't make sense of the name of it. In the interaction to next paint? Yeah. Michael, if you want to jump in, you, you sure. can. Here, Michael, uh, propose a name. So, <laughs> so <laughs> It's his fault. <laughs> yeah, throw me under the bus. So I think it's easy to make these things sound more complicated. So I want to start by just focusing on the goal and then we can go back to some more details. So when you interact with the page, you should see the feedback. You should see the result of that interaction quickly, okay? Yep. So it's from the interaction, from the time you tap the screen, from the time you type on the keyboard, until the next frame is actually shown on screen, until the pixels appear on the screen. And those pixels have to have the feedback of that event. You know, we're constantly animating things. And so we're, it's the first frame that actually had that interaction content in it. I apologize for barging in, but how do you know? I mean, pixels get drawn all over the place and especially with JavaScript can do whatever it feels like in response to an interaction. How do you know that a particular set of pixels are a response to that interaction and not, I don't know, some video playing or some animated GIF or something? Great question, Dan. So we're building on work that has been in the works for years and years. And this is work that we needed for metrics like LCP and a whole bunch of other responsiveness metrics that measure presentation times, paint times. So in Chrome, we instrument side effects, whether they come from main thread or compositor thread. And as you make changes we sort of pass data structures along and then backport sort of feedback when the pixels arrive with those changes. So in this case, we have an event is handled by the browser process. It gets sent to the renderer process. It gets queued up on the main thread. The events are actually dispatched, actually run by JavaScript handlers that the developer registers. At some point when those are finished executing, finished processing, we will eventually schedule a new main thread rendering task, which is the first opportunity on Chromium browsers to take all of the effects that happened on the main thread, commit them over to the compositor thread. And then eventually the compositor still has more work to do, eventually has to submit that to the GPU process, and eventually those pixels have to get to the screen. And then finally, when all of that work happens, we sort of pipe along presentation feedback. So there are just simple data structures along this whole rendering pipeline. 
which took a lot of time to get right. And we're always kind of improving it, making it better. But in this case, I think your question might be, how did you know that the pixels in that update were directly feedback for that response? And in this case, we don't. In this case, this is the first opportunity that it could have provided feedback. And that is what IMP is measuring. Okay. So we don't get confused by video playing alongside and a new video frame was updated. It will be the frame that had the result of the event handlers running, as well as all of the default browser styling work. You know, if you click on a link and it changes from blue to purple, or if you type in a text box and you get the character appearing inside the text box, this is sort of default browser styling. Those effects will be included in that first visual feedback. But we can't guarantee that all of the JavaScript that ran necessarily was a reply to that interact. So I would actually ask or use an example of, of an issue that I that I would encounter with the FID metric and I and I wonder if and, and see and, you know if you could describe what would happen with with uh, in or INP in, in this context. So one thing that I, I actually saw with some JavaScript heavy pages was that they took so long to actually download the JavaScript before hydration that hydration actually not only ran long but also kind of ran late. Yeah. And what would happen is that people would actually interact with the page before the hydration even started, not while the hydration was running, but before the hydration actually started. So thanks to SSR, you actually had content on the page. For those of you who are listening in, SSR means server-side rendering, which means that uh, JavaScript uh, usually running on the back end, React or whatever, or some static site generator provided the, the initial HTML so the page was visible with content from the get-go fairly quickly, but it's not interactive until a whole bunch of JavaScript, let's say React or Vue, whatever, actually is downloaded and executed on the client side, and that could take some time. And what I would see is if uh, the user interacted with that visible content before the JavaScript even finished downloading, that means before it actually even started running, which means that the CPU was actually totally free, it would actually react, the FID would come out as, as being excellent because you click the button that, let's say, or a link that was not wired to anything, and it responded instantly by doing nothing. So there would be no visual change, no nothing. You might even actually click the page itself. Like, I don't know, sometimes you might click an area in the browser window just to make sure that the focus is on that uh, window and not some other application running on, on your desktop. And that would count as, as, as an excellent FID even though nothing actually happened. So my question is, in those scenarios where uh, you click something, and nothing actually happens as a response because, like I said, the script hasn't even run yet. What would INP indicate? And by the way, should I say INP or INP? <laughs> INP. INP. Let's, okay. Let's not go with INP. So, great question. I think that first we can focus on the metric definition, and then I, I want to add to that scenario a little bit. So, the, the metric INP, in the case that you interact so quickly that there has not been, the JavaScript hasn't downloaded, event handlers haven't been registered, there nothing happens, the, the component doesn't feel interactive, you would score positively on INP in that case. I'm still assuming the scenario you you sort of set up here where rendering is yielding, there's nothing happening on page. We do not judge the quality of the interaction to like, there's no way we try to assess whether this was a useful feedback or whether this element was interactive or felt like that would be too difficult 
to assess if that makes sense. Like the UX experience of whether this was working well, or not working. So just to oh, verify so that you... I understand, sorry, AJ, I just want to verify that I understand what you're saying. Let's say, for example, I'll give a concrete example. You have a, a mobile application with a hamburger, and it's actually an example of something that used to exist within Wix, where I used to work, where uh, the uh, hamburger menu that was used by the mobile application, by mobile uh, view of many websites, was originally dependent on hydration. Mm-hmm. And as the hydration used to take a bunch of time. And as a result, if, uh, if a visitor clicked the hamburger menu fairly quickly, nothing happened because the, the, the hydration code hasn't even finished downloading yet. And so that's the worst prop, uh, possible user experience. You clicked the hamburger, the hamburger menu, no response whatsoever, not a delay response, no response, nothing. Sure. But the FID was excellent because the thread was free, was still waiting for the resources to download, and hence responded really quickly. If I understand correctly, what you're saying is that that particular INP measurement would still be good, even though nothing was rendered, because if yes. something would have been scheduled to render it, it would have rendered really quickly. That means the request idle request uh, next to the animation frame would have happened really, really quickly. Precisely. So the second part to my answer is that that one interaction would have been measured as performant. We're not judging the value to the user of that interaction. This is just whether or not we know for sure performance was affected. Like there was rendering could not have proceeded within 200 milliseconds is the threshold that we're using for good friend. So the, that one interaction would have scored well in that one case. But we continue to measure every single interaction with this page. And so at some point in the future, if there was another interaction that was that took longer because it did more, it would overwrite sort of the thing. So in a long-lived session where the user does eventually wait for these things to load, INP is not affected in the same way that FID is. So, so that's so. So basically, but, you're saying that because FID is like this one shot, this page would get a pretty good FID, or this session would get a good yes. FID because that first interaction. But with INP, maybe that first measurement would have been great, but eventually all that JavaScript would arrive, and then which would have result, which would likely result in a lengthy hydration. And then when the user tries to interact with the page, then probably rich clicking because uh, nothing happens with that menu. They will then they would you would measure and report the higher INP value. That makes total sense. There's more to this answer as well. So the scenario you describe. I think is more likely to happen with INP because frameworks nowadays have been optimizing for FID for so long that all of the heavy hydration, you presented a scenario where it's before hydration even begins, but but we're busy loading, we're blocking rendering, perhaps we're getting in the way of the ability to even schedule a rendering task. But it comes out that the input delay was not affected. Like website authors have optimized for that metric to make sure that event handler does get dispatched quickly. So FID would score well, but even in this case, if you're, if you're heavily loading early on, IMP might still have not done. Even, even though the interaction isn't doing what you expect it to do, it might still also not be performing well. So this is worth testing and trying it out. But perhaps the quote unquote crux of your question, Dan, is, is it worth measuring an interaction that is broken? And I think it's difficult to judge. You know, if you have a buy button on a website and you click that buy button and it performs well, it gives you feedback, the JavaScript has loaded, you get something, but the item doesn't get purchased and it doesn't arrive, the user would consider the site broken. But that is not, that is incredibly, is an impossible problem for a performance metric to judge. It's not our role 
in this case. The second thing is, it is a trend in the framework space to be more accessible, to have more progressive enhancement. So on a framework like Remix, all your links, all your buttons will use forms. And before hydration takes over to turn a server rendered site into a client side site with interactivity in JavaScript, it will continue to work. That button will still provide an accessible action that might just do a, a, a server post or some useful fallback. And so it is difficult to judge. The JavaScript handlers haven't been registered. Does this interaction do what is reasonable or not? It, there's no clear answer. So we, we measure the performance only. So in this context, I have to mention Norm Rosenthal, who recently joined you guys at Google. Uh, he actually gave a talk at the recent React Next conference in Israel, and he talked about how to overcome the problem of you know hydration and responding quickly to user input, basically showing methods in which user input could be properly interactively handled before hydration actually even happens, like you mentioned, by basically either letting the browser do it or using a much lighter weight JavaScript and CSS handlers that you kind of custom create to execute before the hydration even starts. And funnily, this is actually based on a real world uh, uh, case. Noam Bayer, to joining Google, also worked at Wix, where going back to that specific example that I gave with the hamburger menu, he, I, I think it was him, but it might have been somebody else. But basically, what they en- ended up doing was handling that particular UI element using a web component that its JavaScript was totally independent of the hydration and the larger framework, React in that case. So it could download and execute much, much earlier and be able to actually display the menu when the user clicked it. So so that's uh, an example of that. I totally agree that the Remix, the approach that Remix uses, and I don't think they're the only ones, of falling back to the built-in functionality, be it buttons or forms or links, to let them handle the interactions, even if it means that instead of working as an SPA, you work as an MPA for that initial interaction, I think that's definitely uh, the way to go. What a segue, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) So that would be an excellent segue to talk about MPA and SPA, but but we are only scratching the surface of INP, and I wonder if we should just uh, exhaust that one first. Yeah, for sure. So so you mentioned that you measure throughout the entire session, not just the first interaction. Then what is it that you report? As I recall, when you were experimenting with it, you were looking at possibility of reporting the average or the median or the, the largest. What did you end up choosing? Yes. So, so first on the topic, this is a full page lifecycle metric. That's just kind of the, the phrasing we tend to, to use or um, like a full runtime metric. I think we use different terms, but much like CLS, where it is not just measured during load, it is measured in t- from load until page unload. So every single interaction with the page matters to users. And we evaluated a bunch of different ways to to do those measurements. We we evaluated whether, it, is there a budget? Like, do users not notice responsiveness under a certain amount? And so it only matters kind of like long tasks above a certain threshold. We evaluated, should we take the sum of all of the time they're spending waiting above their budget? Should we look at average? And, and everything has flaws. But so we found that one of the simplest definitions, which, I, which I'll give in a sec, was very, worked well, but it also had other properties, properties that are useful for end developers. It was the simpler you can get in your definition, and it actually 
passes the tests, like it, it does well as a metric. It, it represents the user experience effectively. It just has, it's hard enough to define these things on their own. And so what we ended up settling with is it's a single interaction. So one interaction, however long you had to wait for that interaction, that's your score. It's the duration it took from when you interacted until pixels appeared on screen. And I use the word duration the way the event timing API uses the word duration. And what we look at is the like worst interaction with the page with a little bit of a caveat there, and I'll describe that. But users, like the, the one worst scenario that they spent with a, a single page load session is how they kind of tend to remember the site. And so that's why, that's what we're focusing on. It's the high watermark. Now, in practice, what we ended up settling with is the 98th percentile interaction. So we pick the worst one unless you've interacted with the site more than 50 times which is super rare. Very few sites interact more than 50 times. But if you're, if you're there, if you're, you know, the Gmails of the world or the YouTubes of the world and you interact hundreds of times, you leave that tab open, long-lived, you will eventually have all of the stars align against you. Garbage collection is happening. The user had the tab backgrounded, power saving mode enabled, and et cetera. And so this interaction could be a blip in the system. If a user is truly spending that much time on your site and interacting that much, Maybe they really love the site and the performance is doing fairly well. And so we, we judge a little bit down from the single worst outlier, if that makes sense. But that detail is only important if you're really diving into the weeds. I think it's easy enough to just think of the single worst interaction for like 99% of, of use cases. That's actually really interesting because what I found is that core vitals, while they're an awesome set of metrics for, let's call it e-commerce websites and obviously landing pages and blogs and whatnot, they're not necessarily such great metrics for dashboards because uh, with dashboards, it's usually not so much about the initial load time. It's more about how your experience over time, how it re... You know, sometimes I joke that people open a dashboard and they go get a cup of coffee. They're fine with it taking a while to load, but once it's loaded, they want it to be responsive. And I think that uh, INP is actually potentially a great metric in this context based on your description. <laughs> because, and it's, it's a metric that I'll certainly try to look at in the context because at Next Insurance, where I work, we actually have a bunch of these dashboard style web applications. And it seems that uh, INP could be a great metric in this context, especially if it works well in a single page application type scenario, which I guess we'll get uh, to soon. Definitely, that's great. I do, on the other hand, have to mention that while we were talking, I was looking at the excellent uh, core vitals technology report dashboard that Rick Viscomi, who also has been on this show, has created, which I highly recommend everybody to look at. And I was comparing the various different frameworks. And by the way, I even recently wrote an article for uh, Smashing Magazine looking at the core vital scores of the various uh, JavaScript frameworks. And all the JavaScript frameworks score phenomenally well for FID, but are fairly abysmal for INP. For FID, they're all in the approximately 95% range. So it's like everybody's acing it. For INP, they're all in around 50%, all of them. Even the quote-unquote fast ones, like, I don't know, like a Svelte or, or Preac or, or these. So that means that I don't know when you plan to do the switchover. I don't know if it's <laughs> it's decided already that you will be doing the switchover, but I'm expecting to see like the, the green core, the old green core vital ratio like drop like a, like a, like a rock 
when that happens, especially for all the websites that are using JavaScript frameworks. Don't hurt Vue. It'll hurt Steve's feelings. <laughs> we do expect the pass rates on Core Web Vitals to, to go down. I think what, what's really interesting, though, is you look at any individual framework and you, you look at the distribution of IMP scores for sites and you see like kind of this bump at, at good and then like this super duper long tail. So I don't think, and as you said, it, it's kind of like, like, some frameworks have like like more distribution of like good and then like shorter long tail and some of them are more flat with a longer long tail but overall it doesn't really seem to be necessarily the framework itself that causes the performance problems but just the fact that people can very easily load a lot of third parties load a lot of libraries make their javascript bundle larger start running more and more stuff so i think that it's not necessarily a problem with individual frameworks, but more so like a problem of, of just including more too many things and trying to do too much. I wouldn't necessarily give the frameworks a pass. If I also look at the all uh, metric, which is an aggregate of all websites, it's noticeably better than any framework. And I assume that third party exists on, on websites that don't use frameworks like WordPress sites, for example. And it looks like frameworks have a problem. So like, I don't, I, I, maybe I'm channeling Alex Russell here, but, but that's the feeling I have. So I think there's one pattern in particular that's worth calling out. And then until this pattern is addressed, we should hold judgment, I would say. Okay. So the reason SPAs are so popular is because I think we all know this, the interactions tend to be faster if you do them right. If you, a good SPA is valuable and that's why it's a pattern that is adopted. Okay. I, there's some smickering in the room. I think it's, it's, you know, but if you compare doing a hard navigation, an MPA reload to another page URL, another route, we would assess that with FCP, LCP, which is in the like one and a half, two and a half second range. That is the amount of time we expect users want to target to feel fast and smooth. With IMP, we are targeting 200 milliseconds for that interaction until the next paint. So by being on the same document and doing the navigation client side, you are being assessed with a 200 millisecond duration instead of a two and a half second duration, if that makes sense. So a user might be using an SPA. They might click, it might take half a second to see visual feedback. And they would say, wow, that was a fast load as compared to two and a half seconds LCP. Yeah. But that is not a fast IMP. So this pattern, the, the direction that many frameworks are going towards is to have, and this has been in their documentation for a long time. They've been doing tech talks and, and conference talks about this for a long time, but it's becoming a first class citizen big time are transitions where you unblock the very first part of feedback. You don't do a giant component re-render, apply a huge DOM update in one step, and then wait for browser to render all that layout style, all like decode all images, and then do one giant rendering update, which could take a long time before you see anything change. But it all pops in nicely. But instead, the direction <coughs> is an initial critical set of feedback first, and then progressively add the rest. And there's tons of different ways to do this in different frameworks, but it is a direction that we're heading. And so what you see is you see a lot of frameworks talking about transition-first routing as being in the next upcoming version. And so every single route change, you'll have a progressive visual update. And so INP will just like explode, I think, and improve in performance on those types of sites. That's my now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I was listening to another well-known tech podcast this past week, and they were talking about transitions being added into the browser. Is that... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
correct? This is unrelated, but that is an incredibly exciting feature as well. The Web Transitions API and, and Jake Archibald. Shared element transitions. Shared element transitions. Remember correctly. Yeah. Wait, what, is, so, what does that mean? Essentially, so my take is slightly different than Michael's. <laughs> I think that SPAs are popular, like, for two reasons. One is, like, developer-oriented reasons that I won't go into. But the other one is that as a platform, we've been providing like the SBA experience when done well is better than MPAs in terms of enabling transitions between one page and another instead of going from blank screen and then re-rendering the next page or the better scenario of not going back blank screen, but still not smoothly transitioning between one page and another. And that, as well as facilities and managing state across different pages, provide, like, basically, there are user experience facilities, user experience advantages in using an SPA when done right over MPAs, over old school uh, multi-page applications. And shared element transitions is one feature in a larger set of features that is aiming to close that gap and enabling the same experience in a multi-page app. So as a developer, you would be able to have multiple pages, multiple HTML pages that are independent, but have a smooth uh, user experience when the user is clicking from one to the other. And a lot of the advantages of SBAs in terms of performance are done by the browser by the fact that you're loading significantly less JavaScript and the JavaScript that you are loading can, for example, use uh, code caches and other other ways of just making sure that that transition from one page to the other is... I have to say, only half jokingly, that I identify modern web applications by the fact that they have multiple spinners on the screen at the same time. So, so yes, you click and it responds quickly by showing you a whole bunch of spinners and then... That's a parallel upgrade. Yeah, and then gradually every spinner disappears to be replaced with a bit of content. But, but, and but not it, found. Yeah, or a, a not, bit or of a not placeholder, found. which is later replaced by content. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I'm totally with you, Av, on that. First of all, it's, it, it's worthwhile noting that already the experience of transitioning between pages in a multi-page application is, is way better than people recall it being like, I don't know, 10 years ago when you had that flash of white because now the previous screen is retained much longer and you can create some sort of of instant reaction in the page to the click, which remains visible for a while until it's replaced with the next page. But what gets really interesting with the transitions is that you can create, like, you can use CSS rules to animate from the previous page to the next page. And I know for a fact that a lot of websites chose SPAs originally, again, putting aside developer reasons like what people learn at boot camps these days. But if I'm looking from the actual user experience perspective, just for the transitions, just to be able to do a more sophisticated transitions like you, you know, people might expect in more modern type applications, especially on mobile. And now you'll be able to do that with CSS between dis- distinct and discrete 
pages in a multi-page application. And and yeah, that, that will be really, really interesting. And it will also be interesting to see how that impacts your measurements of core vitals. Absolutely. Well, I, I will say I'm happy that Yoav and I can have reasonable disagreements and, and argue over a beer as to which approach is best. I'm in team JavaScript. I have been developing client-side rendered sites and I'm I'm super excited about transition. Yeah, I think the I think we know who uh, the podcast software agrees with in this case. <laughs> right? Yeah. Let's I can pause him too. Is it better? Is it better? No, no you're yeah, back. You're, you're back. back. Great. There goes all the enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and, in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships, and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. So you're kicking back, having a beer, and then? <laughs> yeah, so what I was going to say is I'm quite happy that Yoav and I can be on, have different perspectives on this, on this problem. I would consider myself team JavaScript. I would consider myself, I've done a lot of CSR rendered sites and I'm incredibly enthusiastic and interested in the, the direction of, you know, transitional apps or, or one app or like there's a bunch of very exciting stuff happening in the JavaScript space with edge functionality as well. The cool thing about Core Web Vitals and our program in general is that we are entirely agnostic with how a site is built. We focus on what the user sees, what the user experience is, and it doesn't matter how you get there. We also focus on budgets. There, It's not a race necessarily to the bottom of who can get 10 milliseconds better on this or that. If it is good enough, you might choose to start optimizing other metrics like the cost for your server costs or whatever it is. As long as the user experience is sound and Core Web Vitals is just one way to help you draw attention and focus to get there, we, we are very happy and we're glad to see improvements across the board and with so much focus here. So yeah, it's yeah. fun to speculate. It's fun to argue. But at the end of the day, there's room for every approach as long as it meets, as long as it does what's reasonable for the user. I, I said that to Annie last time, you know, when she was our guest in, in that previous episode talking about the history of Core Web Vitals, that one of the things that I love and appreciate about Core Web Vitals is how user focused they are. I mean, obviously, no metrics can be perfect. And especially when you're only using three and you're trying to keep them as simple and understandable as possible. but but it's it's really great because in the past we've had metrics that that were less focused on on actual user experience. Mm. So so in that regard, core web vitals are great. But it's also still worth saying that if you're optimizing core web vitals without actually improving your user experience or potentially even degrading your user experience, and I've seen cases of that, then you're certainly doing more harm than good. Especially given the fact that core web vitals are kind of tied to SEO, I've seen you know, situations in which people try to quote unquote cheat the metrics or cheat their customers that they're improving them, the metrics. If it's like, uh, you know, consultants or whatnot. And if, and it'll get you nowhere because even if you're somehow able 
to pull a fast one on the Google search and maybe get slightly more traffic, then you lose that bounce rate and much more if, if your user experience gets worse. So it's always at the end of the day about the quality of the user experience. Yeah. And there have been like the bit that I like most or worst, depending on your point of view. Colin Bendel from Shopify had this tweet where there are plugins, paid for plugins that people uh, install that cheat. And basically, when when you're being tested in Lighthouse, they document.write the entire page into nothing. So you basically get a blank page in Lighthouse, which gets a good Lighthouse score, which cheats no like. <laughs> This doesn't help in you in any way other than cheating yourself. So, and people pay for those kind of plugins. You don't so, even need that. Just make your server that much slower and you'll time out the Lighthouse score and you'll get a perfect, perfect result. So basically when you're running Lighthouse, especially after purchasing a performance plugin, look at the screenshots. If what you see is blank, then get your money back. That's all I can say. But definitely, definitely. So talking about INP, back about INP, is that a done deal? I mean, I know that it's, it's experimental now. You're already collecting information into Crux, you can, as I mentioned, you can also already see the data and the report. So, is it just a question of time until you replace FID with with INP, or are you still like tweaking things, or is it still in discussions? Like, where is it? So, it is not a core web vital. We understand the limitations of FID, and this is the metric we have the most hope in replacing FID. It will take. We are still working through various kinks and feedback. And so there's nothing done deal about it. I think there are several smaller open questions about how we want to define like exactly which interaction we pick, exactly which parts of each interaction count or don't count. Some small details might still change in order to be the best version of this metric. So I think we are on the path towards optimizing the best version of this metric. I think the bigger picture of we want to measure the initial feedback by focusing on the time from interaction till that next paint. I think we're quite, we've, it, it stood enough of a test of time and gotten enough positive feedback and seems to be working. And there's enough room for improvement. Like it has so many positives, especially as an improvement to FID, that I would be surprised if there was a last minute giant change in that department. Now, in terms of the timeline of these things, I think there is at least a six month lead time before we make any change and when it's announced. And we haven't even made that announcement. So there is at least six months from now and, and probably more. I don't know any if you have more details on that part. Yeah. So, so we haven't made a decision over whether to include it as a search ranking signal. But again, like for any like new metric or metric deprecation or change in threshold, uh, there will be some sort of announcement and then a six-month timeline before that became active in search. I will say this, and going back to the whole UX points that we made and the jokes that I previously made about spinners, you know, you can improve INP without improving your UX or even potentially degrading it. If if all you're doing is just drawing some pixels somewhere quickly and then taking your time to actually fulfill the request, potentially even taking more time than before because you put in that mechanism to create some sort of quick feedback, you're not necessarily doing good. Let's put it this way. So, and I think also, again, I mentioned Alex Russell before. I know that he raised a potential issue about the fact that if you're like 
uh, typing and you just have a 200 millisecond delay all the time or 199 milliseconds, so you're still better than 200 millisecond, it's still a pretty poor user experience. Now, my reaction to him is I, given the results that I'm seeing with pages already, giving the, the, you know, your, the initial data that you're collecting, you know, I wish that would be our problem. But yeah, I, I don't think that even getting a good INP is a guarantee of good UX. I do think that it's already a significant improvement over FID, which has become effectively a meaningless metric because everybody gets such a great score. Yeah, yeah I, think I think we we always need to continually improve the metrics, right? Like the uh, it's not like okay, then we're going to introduce IMP and then we'll be done once and for all, right? Uh, I think it's it's a clear next step where like obviously there's like another step after that in in measuring like asynchronous interactions and understanding those is just more complicated and harder to understand. But I think IMP is a step in the right direction. One of the things that we've been seeing a lot, we, we have this thing in Chrome called slow reports where we can get anonymized traces from users. It looks like kind of a DevTools timeline. And one, one thing that we're seeing a lot is that like somebody will interact and then it's so slow, like nothing happens and then they interact again. And so for your first point about like, okay, you have this quick update, but then the, the task isn't done because it's asynchronous. I think it, it will usually like like if, if the user's not seeing like that that the task is happening, that they'll click again. So I do think that that IMP will still reflect that, at least for, for most cases. I, I do want to push us to the discussion about single page applications because we're starting to run long in this episode. So Yes, we are. So maybe we'll talk about that. So quickly, like why are single page applications a problem, especially in the context of core, of core web vitals as they currently stand? So I can probably take that. Historically, so let's start with the, with the first version of CLS of com- cumulative uh, layout shift. Historically, it has been the shift that is accumulated throughout the entire lifetime of the page. That was the, the first version of CLS before it was improved to be more balanced metric. And that resulted in long lived pages getting significantly worse scores, even though like if you have, let's say, one small layout shift per minute, if you have a long-lived page, that would accumulate into a very high score. Whereas if you have a lot of short-lived pages, that would not accumulate. So that created the first initial tension between SPAs that are typically long-lived pages versus uh, MPAs, which have a bunch of shorter-lived ones. Then as part of the full page lifecycle uh, metrics effort, CLS was improved and INP is also modeled based on a similar model where we don't just accumulate scores over time, but we pick the worst uh, experience throughout the lifetime of the page. Still, you have like for SBAs, the worst score uh, throughout <laughs> a very long lifetime will potentially be lo- worse than the worst score of a very short lifetime that MPAs typically have. So there's still some, there's still some tension there. And there's also, also if I may interrupt, uh, MPAs, because they push computation to the server side, they could potentially get really great scores for scenarios where, for INP scores, for scenarios where single page applications would be severely penalized. Like if you click something to transition between, effectively transition between a page in a multi-page application, like because nothing literally blocks the transition, it's just a link, the INP score would be great, even though 
from the UX perspective, nothing happens for a long time. Just the spinner in, in the, the browser's toolbar starts rotating. Whereas with a single page application, if you show nothing until, and you run a whole bunch of JavaScript in order to handle that, because you do the processing client side, you would potentially get a really bad score, even though the UX would appear to be essentially identical. So first of all, at least from my perspective, the browser signaling is an important signal to the user and is a signal that almost all users recognize as something is happening, something is happening, we're thinking about it, we'll give you, we'll reply, reply shortly. So I don't think we should discount the browser signal of uh, the pages being... Point open. taken. But yeah, but at the same time, yes, like... If we're talking about, like, like Michael said earlier, uh, for MPAs, we have like FCP targets for a second and a half where responsiveness is 200 milliseconds. And for that, in, like, in order for us to be able to expose the same levels of data for SPAs as well as for MPAs, in order for us to be able to say, okay, this is how long start recounting LCP after SPA navigations and provide the same kind of thresholds and provide the same accountability to uh, soft navigation routes versus just assigning everything and uh, attributing everything to the original landing page URL. In order for us to do that, we need to be able to recognize soft navigation. Can you define soft navigations for our listeners? So essentially, navigations that are being done by, uh, by single page apps where the URL is modified and the content is modified as a response to a user click. Well, essentially, it's a navigation that's handled by a client-side router but that's built into mo- like the ones that are built into most uh, frameworks rather than by the browser itself dealing with the server. Exactly. And because it's being done by JavaScript and not by the browser, historically, it is not something that the browser knows things about and therefore cannot attribute metrics to. And essentially, I'm working on changing that. So what? You're going to basically like look at the interaction, then notice that the URL has changed, and then look at the next paint after that, something like that? Something along those lines. So basically, in order to do that, I had to build uh, some missing infrastructure in order to be able to tie uh, the user click to URL changes and DOM changes that happen after that, because in many of the frameworks, that work is is done asynchronously. And even if, like, even in uh, funnels where, like, there the new navigation API, those, like, that work happens in different uh, tasks and different, like, microtasks or tasks. And we need to be able to tie all that back to that user interaction in order to have reasonable heuristics that don't just, you know, assume that any DOM modification is related. So I did some work to create that infrastructure for task attribution and being able to say this task is a descendant of this other task. And now I'm building uh, soft navigation heuristics on top of that that essentially do that. So essentially see that a user click has happened and then see that DOM modifications and a URL change happened as a result of that and then say, okay, a soft navigation has happened and now we can start 
doing things as a, as a result. So to put it into uh, practical terms, currently, like you said, when there's a soft navigation, it's wholly ignored in the context of core web vitals and other web performance metrics. So FCP is not calculated again. LCP is not calculated again. CLS is not reset. It keeps on going. So what is your end goal to actually deal with soft navigations like like they were hard navigations, browser navigations, so that, for example, yes. if I cause a single-page application to use the local, as I, as I said, the local JavaScript route, router to change the URL, that would calculate a new FCP and a new LCP and reset the CLS? That That's the end goal? That is the end goal. It is, yeah, a hard and long stretch, but it's, yeah, that is the end goal. We want to be able to report those, like, basically, as Michael said, we want to be uh, tech agnostic and client-side navigations versus versus server-side navigations should be the same as long as the user experience is good on both. And we want to be able to measure that those user experiences similarly in both Tech stats. It'll be really interesting to see what the data once you start gathering it, because historically, a lot of the framework advocates have been complaining that core vitals are shortchanging single page applications, that single page applications generally pay a higher price up front for better experience down the line. And they will need to show that, uh, that, that, that that's that actually true, that they are actually able to provide better core vitals for those soft navigations, given the higher uh, cost of that initial of the initial view. That's the goal. Yeah. And once we'll be able to know, like once we know how long soft navigations take, then we can start to kind of like maybe they are better. Maybe they are a better way of building websites, or maybe they're slower, and we need to address that. Or maybe some of them are great, and some of them are bad, and we can split that bimodal distribution and figure out which ones are bad and what are the common characteristics and how can we fix them. So essentially, until we have that kind of measurement, at least from my perspective, we are shooting in the dark, and we should... Try to stop so me. basically, your goal, I guess, for this stage is to come up with some sort of LCP star metric in addition to the current LCP metric that will also measure that. And then you'll be able to graph one versus the other or based on real user sessions that are, you know, data that's collected into Crux, something like that. That's slightly more advanced goal. Like initially, I just want to test that my heuristic is roughly accurate. And this is something that I started collecting data internally, but at the same time, I'm still playing with the heuristic in order to fix obvious bugs that I already found. And then the next step after that is to run an origin trial with uh, RUM providers and general folks who collect performance metrics and have awareness into their SBA soft navigations. And basically run an origin trial and try to get uh, folks that are trialing to tell me where I'm wrong or to figure out where they're wrong or like basically compare my heuristic uh, to what people are currently using in the wild as well as look in our data and try to find, for example, pages that are using frameworks but have zero soft navigations according to my heuristic. So that would mean that my heuristic is wrong and I need to fix it. 
in those specific scenarios. So that's the first step. And then the step after that is some sort of a, yeah, an, an experimental internal metric as well as maybe an experimental LCP value to expose to run providers. And then we can see what it would mean for us to shift from one to the other. This is really cool. I, I, I really love the, the process that you're describing and all the hard work that goes into, into these metrics. So this is not just like man, a mandate from heaven or something like that. They, these are all, you know, the result of blood, uh, sweat and tears trying to get all these metrics to actually uh, correlate with real world user experiences. This is awesome. I thought coming from these people was the same as heaven. Did I miss that? <laughs> <laughs> so when do you think, you know, is there any sort of expectation about when you'll start all doing all that uh, work, all that all that gathering of information? Yeah, it's funny that you use the word expectation. No mm. pressure, no pressure. No, no, it's uh, all good. Basically, I'm hoping to go to origin trial for the basic, like a very early origin trial with a made-up API shape just to test the heuristic uh, very soon. And then, yeah, other than that, I'm, yeah, we'll see how that goes. It all depends on whether the, the heuristic matches what is out there in the field or not. Is there any association between what you're doing and the new history APIs, or is this like in, independent of the, of the APIs used? It is independent for now. So I'm hoping that I can come up with a heuristic that will work for existing content out there today. It is possible that this will not work out. The History API has some advantages of being able to mark the end of the, of the session from the developer's perspective. So it is possible that we'll need some sort of a developer opt-in into a well-lit path that will make it easier to measure. If that would be the case, that opt-in is very likely to be the navigation API. So I'm still hoping that it won't be a requirement, but it is possible that... I don't necessarily think that such a requirement would be so bad because I'm, I'm assuming that most frameworks will adopt the new navigation APIs fairly rapidly. So even... Even if users don't actually deal with it, they'll get it for free as part of frameworks. I'm guessing, I'm hoping. I, I guess I'm hoping. <laughs> Those that upgrade, maybe. But yeah, it's always better to cover more content than less content. I will like, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll see if there's a, like, if it's a necessity, then this is... Yeah, let's put it this way. Websites that don't update, they probably care less about core vitals anyway. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, if they're not investing in, in, in updating their frameworks and probably not investing that much in their websites anyway. Yeah. I, uh, there is definitely that element of things, right? I mean, even Core Web Vitals being part of SEO, you know, or influencing SEO, it only the people who care about those particular metrics, right? Where they're, you know, they're ranking in Google makes or breaks their business or at least care about that kind of a thing. And then it's, folks on our end who are looking at it and saying, hey, I want this to be performant. I want it to be a good user experience. I want, you know, these kinds of things, you know, and, and if you're not focused on either of those things on the user experience or on the SEO, yeah, I don't see that that's going to be something you worry about. Similarly, yeah, if you're not upgrading your your frameworks, then you do this stuff and what it means because, the, yeah, you're going to, you know, you may miss, on, uh, miss out on some of these optimizations, but 
I'm glad that this is being put out there. I'm glad people are talking about how we measure the end of the day. It really does allow us to provide a better experience for people on the web. And I do think from our perspective, at least the broader of an understanding we can get over like as many pages as possible, Mm -hmm. we can learn a lot more about like, even basic things are really unknown right now, like how many uh, SPA transitions are there for every MPA transition? Uh, right. our, our framework's getting better and worse. Like, like maybe we find out that there's some framework out there where like the next version has significantly slower SP transitions than the old version. And and so like a broader measurement would be able to, to understand those types of things. It's my guess, but I'm thinking that we will actually potentially be surprised by how few soft navigations actually happen in real life. I think that a lot of websites are being built these days using frameworks as SPAs, even though they are generally very shallow and there are really relatively few navigations within them. So I wouldn't be surprised at all if the numbers are actually fairly low. It'd definitely be interesting to know it for sure. Yeah, future statistic for for a future web almanac, I guess. Yep. Yeah, this is one of the things that actually surprised me the most, uh, working on Core Web Vital and getting like web developer feedback from day to day. I realized it was a little bit biased uh, on single page apps where I only like like the ones that you can feel it, right? Like you're you're browsing and you're like, oof, this is a single page app. That was like my idea of what a single page app is. But mm-hmm. um, when we got feedback from broader areas of partners, I realized I was using single page apps every day and just assuming they were multi-page applications. So I'm really interested in though. Uh, right. I, I'm really excited about y'all's work and getting the, some numbers out there because I, I feel like I can't predict what it's going to say. Yeah. For example, again, going back to my uh, sort of uh, the, my previous employer in the case of Wix that's built using React, actually all Wix websites are single page applications. And by the way, one of the main motivations was the whole transitions thing to enable a person who's using uh, the Wix website builder to specify like cool transitions between the different pages. It'll be interesting to see what, if and what they do with the uh, transitions API once the, if and when these land and become, and gain cross browser support. But yeah, that's a perfect example of, of, of using an SPA for a particular reason, even though navigation might be fairly shallow in most cases. Yeah, and you mentioned Web Almanac as the like way to expose soft navigation. So I, I think Crux would be a more interesting avenue to expose that because it basically depends on the user behavior. You could have pages with many links that are theoretically deep, but you know, in practice, no one ever goes beyond a click or two. So yeah, Definitely, I will. Yeah, it would be definitely interesting to also see how we can expose that info. In yeah, well, I'm I'm all for Crux. I love Crux. <laughs> cool. We seem to be winding down a little bit. Is there anything else that we need to make sure people know about before we do our picks? Can I add one more topic on yeah. INP? We this could be an open ended mm-hmm. one to leave as a challenge to the audience, but INP I mentioned it several times, but measures from the moment you interact like the hardware timestamp of the event until pixels appear on screen. And there's so much focus on JavaScript and main thread Mm -hmm. and handling processing. But that is just one of many things that can get in the way of that time. We talk about input delay sometimes and what gets in the way, other work on main thread focusing on long tasks. We talk about event handlers themselves. But you can have tasks that are queued up and run before the next, next rendering task. 
You can have a request animation frame that takes a long time. You can throw a lot of DOM updates that take a lot of style and layout, all of that on main thread. You can also throw work at the browser through CSS or uh, et cetera that just takes a long time to render and makes the GPU bog down to rasterize and to get pixels out. All of that affects the time it takes to get feedback out. And I think there will be a long process of tooling updates, documentation, education, and like mutual, like even the best of us as experts are constantly stumped and learning in this department. Mm-hmm. And so as browsers become more sophisticated, as we move more work off main thread to improve performance, more of the rendering pipeline becomes a bit of a black box that is hard to understand. And we're going to have to figure those things out collectively as a community. And I think a lot of the questions with INP right now, there's some low-hanging fruit. You know, why is my JavaScript getting in the way? How do you define this? How to think? But then once you get past those low-hanging problems, you get into bigger problems where even the experts can be stumped. Why did this take so long? Why was this so delayed? Why did this frame not get delivered? And so we'll get there. And I think that's an open challenge. It'll be an interesting couple of years or however long it takes. And then we'll drive improvements to these numbers. But I just wanted to not leave today without at least mentioning that part of the problem, which would be interesting. Yeah, for example, just a, a concrete example of, of these sort of things. I'm currently investigating why certain interactions are taking a really long time in our application, especially on Android devices. And it's wholly unclear based on the field data whether the problem is network-related or CPU-related or both. And using RAM data to, to determine that is very challenging. Now, obviously, I can try to simulate these type of environments and see what happens in, in lab tests, but I can never know for sure that I'm actually simulating the, the, the scenario that most of the, the, the people experience, especially as I move to the higher percentiles. So, yeah. so yes, it can be really challenging. It, yeah. The, the browser is an amazingly complicated beast for sure. So it is true that for all full page lifecycle metrics, taking your field results, which are coming from all users in all geographies on all devices in all sorts of conditions, and they might have followed any particular user flow in their long lived session can be difficult to replicate. And it, you know, CLS does tend to lean more heavily towards loading type issues. And so it's a little bit more clear cut how to replicate. But even then we have issues sometimes replicating field CLS in the lab. But INP is an even bigger problem. And so there's a whole slew of new issues we're going to have to solve, which is we have these reports. How do I replicate locally in the lab? And one way to do that perhaps is to just, you know, with crux, all you get is your scores and you get your distribution of scores. You don't get insights. But if you measure your own event timings or in layout instability using the performance timeline, you can report attribution. And so you could get more insights. And so you could report a whole session. The user clicked here, then they waited a while, then they clicked here, then this network came in. And then right around this time, on this type of interaction against this node coincided with this long task. And therefore, there was a long interaction. Like you could do things like that. And so, yeah, so m- maybe there's a, a whole project there in terms of helping transition from field data to lab reproduction. But what I was referring to is even if you have a lab repro, even if you can see that this interaction is taking me a while under these particular conditions that you carefully set up, why? Where did the time go? Mm-hmm. Even that is a problem. And so all of those things are going to be very interesting and exciting. And we will be, uh, you know, on Chrome team trying to evolve tooling to make that as easy as possible. 
also through documentation and et cetera. This will, this will be a process, but that's why those numbers that you see now in field data, I'm still excited that we will drive those. We will, we will improve collectively by focusing on this problem. We will improve it. And, and that excites me. I love the Chrome Dev tools. I live in the Chrome Dev tools. So handy. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's like this week's uh, web performance working group call. Michael will be expanding more that concept. So yeah, tune in if you're <laughs> so inclined. And we can probably link the, like send the link to the presentation later. Cool. All right. Well, I'm going to push this to picks. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Do I have Do you have some picks for us? Walk in the forest. No, I was kidding. So actually, all I have this week is you'll have to excuse the heavy machinery outside my window here. Their timing is impeccable. (laughs) The usual dad jokes of the week. And sorry, I don't have the rim shot access check, so you might have to step in for me. I think I've got um, it. All right. So did that go off? It didn't play. No, you had to be in live mode, so that might be the problem down at the bottom. I anyway, am in live mode. Anyway, yeah, it wasn't working earlier today, so we'll see. Anyway, did you hear about the missionary who went around sharing laxatives to people? <clears throat> he started a religious movement. Thank you. It, it's not working. I'm sorry. <laughs> That one is good enough anyway. So I knew somebody who uh, was a longtime smoker, a friend of mine, and he recently gave it up cold turkey. He's doing better, but he's still coughing up feathers. (laughs) I actually smiled at that one. And then finally, I went to, uh, I was looking to buy some furniture and I went to uh, a furniture store and the furniture salesman told me, this sofa will seat five people without any problems. I said, where the heck am I going to find five people without any problems? (laughs) So yeah, those are my picks for the week. Chuck, can I go next? Because my uh, yeah. my browser tells me our security team has decided that my browser will restart itself in approximately five minutes. So <laughs> do it. <laughs> yeah, I'll be bumped off. Okay. So my first pick is actually uh, one of your Google colleagues, which is Felix Arnett. I think his name is, who is on the you know our topic for today was performance, and he's part of the uh, WordPress performance core team. I'm really happy that WordPress, you might say finally, is is putting significant effort into improving performance. Being such a significant part of the web means that any improvements that they can make have wide-ranging impact on so many websites and so many users. And I'm really happy about that. And I've spoken with him a bit. And I'm really glad about the work that they're that they're going to be putting in. They've already started doing stuff, mostly collecting data, I think, for now. But uh, they already have ideas of things that they want to do. And it's definitely a challenging problem because that uh, ecosystem is so open and so diverse. It'll be interesting to see what they are what they are able to achieve. So that would be my my first pick. My second pick is watermelons, or actually even fruit in general. This is watermelon season in Israel, and they are amazing. They are just so delicious. They're seedless. They are sweet. I can't get enough of them. If you're really into fruit, 
then Israel is a place to be. It's a bit expensive, but uh, it's just so delicious. So that would be my second pick. And my third pick is that same pick I pick each and every time, is reminding us all about the ongoing war in Ukraine. It's not winding down. It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse with all the atrocities that we're seeing. So I'll keep picking that. And I don't know, hopefully it will eventually I'll be able to stop picking it, but it doesn't seem like it's going to be anytime soon. So those would be my picks for today. Yep, absolutely. And I I think we all just keep an eye out for ways that we can help. AJ, what are your picks? So I actually don't have a big list this week or anything in detail. I don't think there was something that we talked about at the beginning of the show that I know I've got to talk about on Creedsman creedsofcraftsmanship.com that now I can't remember what it was, but I was going to pick this thing and now I don't... The L's keyword, maybe? Remember. Were we talking about that on the show? I don't, don't think it was... I think it that. might be but, a topic for a future episode. But yeah, sure. We could pick uh, Matt Ryer's Things I Never Use. So Go is already a very simple language. It is it is extremely small. It is smaller than, than JavaScript when JavaScript was small. And uh, Matt Ryer has a talk in which he talks about things that he thinks are excessive and superfluous. And one of them is the else keyword, because generally speaking, if you're using else, it's a signal. It's, it's kind of a code smell. There's, there's very few situations where you else really makes sense. Just to give context, yeah, sure. the alternative, Pick America. like I said, we'll okay. probably talk about it in a future episode, but uh, uh, small functions with early returns is one possible alternative to else statements. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I did, but I, I don't remember. I, I think All I had right. two things, but anyway. Happy Fourth of July, well, everybody! Sounded like you had something else. Oh, it's a little late for that. Yeah, America. I do pick America as a Canadian. All right, let this one. <laughs> but okay, as a Canadian, you're going to be supportive and cheerful. I saw this tweet like "Happy Treason Day, you ungrateful colonials." Yeah, I had a picture of King George the Third. Yeah, yes, pretty funny. Uh, something like that. Yeah, I saw a few others that were a little bit more politically charged that I won't share. I'm going to throw out a few picks here. I always pick a board game. And uh, this weekend, we were down at my mother-in-law's house, and she had this game that she was playing with all the kids. And then she played it with us, with all the adults. And it was it was a lot of fun. It's a party game. So I have to say, I'm not typically a big fan of the party games, just in the sense that they seem to be kind of light. I don't know. I, I like the games that really make me try. 0.05. Um, now on Board Game Geek, it has a weight of one, which means it's a real. And this one is kind of one of those mental word games, which has made it fun. It's called Just One. Uh, a really, really simple game. And effectively, what you do is you have cards that it you get a stack of 13 cards. You take turns putting one up in front of you. And uh, each card has five words on it. So then you say one, two, three, four, or five, right? And then everybody tries to give you a clue, a one-word clue, on to get to get you to guess the word. And it's a cooperative game, and so if you fail to guess it, then they, then I guess the game gets the point. And if you guess it, then you get the point. And so if you get seven of them, you technically won. But if you pick the same one-word clue as somebody else, then both of you have to take your clue out and you can play with up to seven people. So anyway, it it gets kind of tricky because you don't want to go with just the obvious answer because if you do and somebody else does, then your guess is out. And anyway, it was a lot of fun. I actually enjoyed it. Enjoyed playing a party game. Go figure. 
But yeah, so I'm going to pick that. And then I'm just going to encourage folks to go check out topendevs.com slash conferences. Um, we've got a bunch of conferences coming up over the toward the end of the year. And I would love to help you all move ahead with your careers and, you know, the things that you're doing in JavaScript. So yeah, the JavaScript conference, I think, is in September. And then we're going to have conferences for all of the different frameworks. So React, Vue, and Angular, because we have shows for those and, you know, know a lot of people that can come and share awesome stuff. So anyway, those are my picks. Annie, do you have some picks for us? Yeah. So from the technical end, I wanted to call this presentation from 2018. It's by this guy, Halvar Flake, who at the time was at Google Project Zero. It's called Security, Moore's Law, and the Anomaly of Cheap Complexity. And he's talking about it from the perspective of security, the fact that like machines are getting so capable that it's actually easier from a developer perspective to do something that's like more complicated for the machine. And I just I really love the presentation and I, I think it's really applicable to performance. And uh it made me think a lot, and especially, you know, in this world of frameworks and everybody including more things. I think it really helped me empathize better with web developers as well. So I thought it was a really cool presentation. That's it for me. All right. Yoav, what are your picks? My first pick is just no meetings week, which <laughs> relates to 4th of July and Canada Day. And like, I work mainly with Canadians and Americans, and I actually had time to code in these last few days between Friday with the Canadians out and uh, yesterday with the Americans out. I managed to land a few you know, meaningful patches, and I'm happy about that. So I... I recently tweeted you have, you have, I recently tweeted a tweet that got some interesting reactions, which basically said if you're yeah. a dev and you're in your meetings all the time, then you're not a dev. <laughs> I yeah, I saw that it hurt my feelings. And yeah, so my problem is a mix of like it's typically not meetings, it's mostly like, you know, emails and reviews and making sure that so yeah, but but writing your own like, yeah, writing code for your own and getting stuff done that you want to get done is, yeah, is fun. And my second pick, I guess, is, uh, the return of, uh, real life conferences, uh, which is exciting. Mm-hmm. So we have, uh, TPAC, which is the W3C <coughs> annual conference that hasn't happened in real life for the last, uh, three years. And it's, very much needed and it's coming back this september you know assuming everything remains reasonable uh so i'm super excited about that and then there's another conference coming up uh this uh fall i think end of october in amsterdam called performance.now which is always yeah the the best conference of the year every year when it when we used to go outside of our own homes. So I'm looking forward to awesome. uh, getting back there. That Those are my All right. Picks. Michael, what are your picks? I love Yoav's picks, so I'll just start with that. But uh, I, um, I have a lot of hobbies outside of tech, and so I figured I could share those. So we're on a podcast. I like listening to podcasts. And so one of my hobbies is sailing, and probably my favorite sailing podcast at the moment is by Matt Rutherford. He's got a podcast called Single-Handed Sailing. Matt Rutherford is a bit of an extreme person, decided he wanted to to sail and just started doing transatlantic crossings on his own single-handed in a tiny sailboat, and then did the world's first ever nonstop around the Americas, where he spent 300 days, days on a sailboat and got like flipped upside down and 
ate space food. And anyway, what an interesting person. And, uh, and yeah, when I pick up hobbies, I like to do them pretty extreme, but this is, this is off the deep end. And I, it's, um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to hold off from dropping everything and just moving onto a boat myself. We'll see how that goes. The other hobby I have is woodworking. And, uh, I figured I'd share a fellow Canadian YouTuber and podcaster, uh, Samurai Carpenter, which I find very entertaining. And maybe that's enough for now. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. I really get into the woodworking stuff as well. And my, my daughter wants me to help her fix her desk, which I think is going to involve rebuilding it. <laughs> so, but yeah, I fix all kinds of stuff around here and I really enjoy making stuff and, and it's yeah. different, right? It's different making stuff in your garage with your tools than it is making stuff on your computer. And absolutely, I don't know, just working with my hands. Yeah. It's funny because, yeah, I'll get frustrated when stuff doesn't quite go the way I want it to, but it's just so relaxing to kind yeah. of exercise the other muscle. So, yeah, I, I'm, my wife wanted us to buy a desk for my son from Ikea. And I said, why spend 300 bucks when I could build one in two weeks and $600 later? Yeah, right. All right. We'll, we'll go ahead and wrap up here. Thanks, you all, for coming. This was awesome. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having us. All right. Till next time, folks. Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.